the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Bemis as the Beaver. And this is episode 293, I think. I didn't look before we started. Yeah, 293. All right. Uh, do we have a hat? Do we have a... Title? Title. Bags of saltwater get in the way. <laughs> All right. I, that I like sounds that. good to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. And uh, that name came from, we were just talking about uh, wireless testing. Wireless testing is uh, a special hell because mm. unless you have a Faraday cage, it just messes up all the time. So we were uh, testing Wi-Fi units that were only a few inches from the laptop and doing a series of speed tests. And on the other side, not in line of sight, not in between, was one of my staff waving his arms around that caused the Wi-Fi to slow down about 10%. We think that when he blocks another 5 gigahertz signal probably coming through the adjacent wall, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it makes the Wi-Fi speed change. Um, we puzzled over this for almost 30 minutes because it became like we were determined to try to solve it. We just came to only that conclusion. We were not really scientists and we don't have the proper tools to test it or a Faraday cage. But we did consider building one because Lowe's is behind us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so I, I came up with the uh, bags of salt or people get in the way of Wi-Fi. Yes. Um, it turns out we have the – if you guys see me pick it off the table, I've reviewed it. It's one of those alpha – um, external Wi-Fi USB devices, and it's got the big five long high-gain antennas on there. Mm. If not at the bottom, don't ask me why, if you hold the bottom, it makes no difference. If you hold it at the top, we can get speed gains out of it. We don't know mm. why again. So the bags of salt water, then instead of being in the way, they help transmit Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> All so right. Those are the, those are the mysteries that led to this title. Yeah. So, uh, Jay, so what's going on with you this last couple weeks? So I finished a new tutorial series on my YouTube channel, uh, the Ubuntu Server Administration Guide. They're uploading now. Uh, There should be like three to six videos a week until it's done, 18 videos total. So I think about half of them should be up there by now. So the Ubuntu Server Essential Series just was was the basics. This is one where people can apply more advanced skills. It even has you do like a... um, Things like an Nginx proxy in front of a um, application, mm. Nextcloud. It walks you through how to set up a Nextcloud server, and it tells you how to basically. The focus is creating applications that are um, publicly internet facing. So you get an idea of okay, now I have this application facing the World Wide Web, and okay, now it's got to be secure. All these different things come into it. So I wanted to give everyone a more practical tutorial series on how you would actually do these things in an enterprise environment versus um, here's how you do all these commands, which I have done in the past, but this is more like practical hands-on. And then I was planning on doing a Kubernetes lab to um, get started on getting certified in that. And then I um, became ill. I was under the weather for a week. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. there wasn't anything else I can do. So hopefully my voice is most of the way recovered by now. Um, but yeah, other than that, that's basically all I've had. All right. Uh, Tom? Well, we had some fun. We uh, took apart the rack and completely, like, we took all of our servers down and everything. 
And uh, we did forget to tell at least one person who messaged us going, um, we can't get into our server. And I looked at it sitting on the floor. I'm like, yeah, it, it'll be an hour or two. Oh, <laughs> I didn't expect Saturday night they would want to get in, but, you know, that happens. Um, there was a planned outage, at least by, on our part. Uh, when, when we were done, we had um, all the servers installed, updated, and all 10 gig. That was also part of it. So we wanted to rewire everything, and we put in 10 gig switches. Uh, you know, it, gig isn't fast enough anymore. <laughs> so um, it also laid into some of the Wi-Fi testing because we tested the new uh, Unify 10 gig system, and uh, which is their... Uh, Base Station XG, which is a 10 gig backplane for a Wi-Fi connector that can support up to 1,500 users per device. So uh, reviews of both the Unify uh, system and the rack itself with all the different components that went into it. Uh, we made a video on my YouTube channel. It's called Check Out Our Rack and uh, mm-hmm. the 2018 edition. And then we have our uh, Unify review of, of that, which, of course, there's another debate that started and... Uh, so there's going to be some follow-up videos to it because everyone's complaining because it uses copper uh, RJ45 for the 10 gig instead of SFP. Mm. And people are like, oh, no, you need to use that because we want we want to run fiber connections. But I'm like, well, then how do you power it? That's why they did it. So um, the other thing I did was upgrade my own system to 10 gig. So I now have a 10 gig connection from my computer to uh, the free NAS in the back at full 10 gigs because I – my videos were getting too much to hold on to and edit and deal with on my own computer. So now I just use um, the FreeNAS as my big hard drive. <laughs> wow. Yeah, with a 10-gig connection, that's a, uh, decent. Yeah, it's actually faster. Than, it, it is faster than the hard drive that was in there because I had just spinning hard drives for mm. my data storage. Because I Well, I filled up a 3-terabyte drive. So I'm like, well, now what? And then I decided to go 10-gig, and now it's like the FreeNAS uh, I can transfer at – I think it's just about 700 meg a second or something like that. So it's as fast as an SSD, but it's 11 terabytes of storage for my right. videos now, which I will run out of and have to buy more drives soon. So that's if I, I got to mm-hmm. figure out what to do with all the video I produce. <laughs> wow, yeah. That's, been, that's a whole different uh, data management problem. I yeah, see some I, of these. I, I do. What I do on mine is I have a B2 sync backblaze B2. Yeah. And in FreeNAS, what I do is I tell it to move. So I have this archive folder on my FreeNAS. So when I am done editing a video, I throw them in, in that folder, and then once per week it actually moves them to B2, and B2 is set to never retire or age out any data. Um, mm. One of the things that they were talking about, like on Linus Media Group, for you know everyone's familiar with Linus Tech Tips and things like that because they shoot so much data, I think they have a two-petabyte server just to handle it. And then they're wow. trying to figure out what to do with it because it's getting full. They're like, well, where do we put these? He actually just bought a tape archiver and did a video on it of how they're using tape management to archive all their old data. And, yes, really? tape management. It's the only wow. thing with the capacity. These were $6,000 tape drives, each one he bought. He did a review of them, which was kind of interesting because they're not something I thought about anymore. But it's how do you archive that much data when they want to move it into cold storage. They want to be able to access it potentially. Um, but it's there's a I couple think- breakdown videos of it because it's – he tried uploading it, and it's just he talked about just how the tape drive is. He does a breakdown mm-hmm. on cost. Up, putting on tapes costs him less money because of the vo- the upload is what kills him. It's not mm-hmm. the storage of it; it's the transactional part of getting it into um, anywhere. Even uh, what do you call it? Uh, Glacier or Backblaze. Both of them are really um, high priced. You can yeah. send the hard drives to him though. And get them uploaded that you way. Know, I don't, I don't think the, you mentioned that as yeah. an option. Because I know with B2, they have the fireball thing where you could fill a hard drive full of data and you could just send it to them and then they'll put it in your bucket for you. So, wait, then, the mail's faster than the internet? 
Um, well, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. I mean, I, I mean, I don't have that amount of data. I mean, I'm, I mean, I might have hundreds of gigabytes of videos, but certainly not petabytes. But then, but, but then again, yeah. um, the biggest tries they make right now, what, 12 terabyte Western Digitals? So then how do... Well, I was just referring to maybe like at a monthly basis. Yeah. I don't know how much he does in a month or a week. You know, fill one hard drive, send it, fill another one. It seems like there's a better solution yeah, than tapes. Probably. I don't know. It was in, it's, a good, it's a good dive into what do I do with all this data? <laughs> yeah, it well, makes me wonder the what kind of advancements came in for tape technology. Because the last I saw, there were like maybe 30 gig... Yeah, they and these things were very advanced, pretty slick too. How it worked, it was, oh yeah, it, everything about it was interesting. Quite a bit further than that now, but now the bad thing about it was even he failed to get it installed in Windows. They're designed to connect to Macs, so yeah, yeah. Wait, so, what? They, they 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 only Mac and that's it? Or yeah, wow, those tape drives. That's oh, where wow. they worked the best. The software support was the best. The drivers worked properly. Everything about them works better on Mac than it does on PC. PC was hmm. just a, kind of a nightmare of setting them up. And I think IBM makes the drives. Hmm. It's it's a weird. I, wow. I, I wonder if, like, the GUI was nice for Mac, but it, I'm sure it would run fine in Linux because, you know, it's probably all Linux yeah. commands in the back end. It was using mm-hmm. um, Thunderbolt connectors for the tape drive, too. Oh. I think that's probably why they had better Mac support. Yeah. You know, I'm um, not off topic, but kind of on topic because we can do another episode on this. Um, but we should, in, listeners, let us know. Should all of us reminisce about storage technologies because we've been mm. in this for so long? <laughs> Just be a yeah. fun episode. Would be a fun <laughs> yeah. episode. And we'll bring in uh, a guest, something like Michael Lucas, someone with a little more gray hair than us who's mm-hmm. been doing it longer. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you could probably talk about the whole um, archive problem, not just from the tape perspective, but hard drive shelf life when it's just you put stuff on a backup disc and you put it on the on the shelf um you have that problem but then with optical media like dvdrs D- Blu-rays, you have like you that. have disc rot there's a lot so. there's a lot to talk about that so i think we'll we'll shelf that that's an entire episode of what do you do because i keep all my data spinning and there's probably different strategies for how to deal with all that so mm-hmm. tony what did you do well my free nas continues to crash on me yay yeah and uh, I, I didn't mention it last time uh, in the show, but Tom let me borrow a uh, um, oh, hard drive controllers. Did it help uh, any? It did not. Oh, well, it, I, problem so, is elsewhere. Yeah, so it's not the <laughs> controller. It sounds like uh, it's something in the motherboard itself. Uh, I suspected something was going bad when I first got it, mm. but this was like two years ago. So what so exactly are the fine. symptoms you're dealing with? Uh it randomly crashes anywhere between two days and two weeks. Like the whole system? The whole system just freezes up and nothing goes. I'm sure you've already and tested your RAM and everything on the yeah. server. Yeah, I ran through. And, again, this is on the motherboard that now I think is failing. It said all the tests were fine. But, um, yeah, the RAM and the processors tested fine. Um, it fails on a fan error because the the fan connector or something maybe the chip on that controls the fan is blown but it's always done that ever since i got it um and then it was just recently i've uh been getting a lot of um io errors to the hard drive to one or two usually it's Mm -hmm. one and then like a month later i'll get it for three of them will be given these errors but when i reboot everything comes up fine or if i'll run like um uh, spin right on it, then it reboots and everything's fine. Like, oh, it magically works now. Um, I've that, had a so that's problem where I was pointing like, at the controller. 
Now, see, I had a problem similar to that one time. Ended up being a couple of bad SATA cables. Yeah. Well, I went through and replaced <laughs> all the yeah, SATA controllers the or the, well, the cables. What speed motherboard and, is it? Like, what what are you using? It's a Dell T fifty five hundred. So it's like okay. a custom Dell, but a, a, the T series Precision series is you know a high end workstation. Yeah, so, those are nice. Oh, you, yeah. you mean like the the big ones with the silver thing in the front? Yeah, the, uh, I've the had that fifty five hundred is like the mid tower size. I've had that so same huge, exact but. issue. On that same exact hardware. Oh yeah. Um, way back when that server or workstation was new, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but I had a um, Debian install on it, and I did a like a MD RAID RAID one, um, mm-hmm. just, just uh, mirror, and no, it was RAID five, and I literally had to rebuild the RAID every month because it, it would just like get out of sync, and then it'll tell me a drive has failed, and it didn't. Yeah. And I kept having that problem over and over again, and I really eventually strange. got rid of it. Yeah. Well, so. that's what I'm, I'm getting rid of it. I, uh, Tom gave me a case for a super micro and I ordered a, a oh, motherboard. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, the motherboard should be in tomorrow. Awesome. And, Great. uh, the motherboard I, I ordered, you know, I, I made sure it was, you know, fits this case. Like it specs yeah, out that, for that case. Uh, but it also matches the CPUs and RAM I have in my system right now. Oh, cool. So, oh, wow. and what I like about it is it's a dual Xeon. Uh, and each Xeon has six cores. That's uh, so that's 12 CPUs, and then you can hyperthread it to 24. 24. Nice. Oh, yeah, it's going to work out great. That'll solve everything because it's kind of weird you're running into the same problem that I ran into on, on yeah. that, but but different OS. So yeah. that's, that's weird. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to um, – uh, so I will be working on that this week. And my I usually have – I have my feed reader, my news feed is running on a VM on that server, and it's down right now. Oh. It crashed sometime yesterday, and I haven't had a chance to go down and reboot it. So uh, I can't get to my normal news feed right now. So I might not have much. I have one article that I can think of off the top of my head, but that's about it. Uh, but with that in mind, I think we should, be, we should head on to feedback. We want to hear from you. Call 734-258-7009 or email show at smlr.us with your feedback and questions. All right. Uh, So uh, our feedback that we've gotten this week. Do we have any? We've got a few and one. We have a um, support from a listener. And... Let me find that email. Did you guys see those emails I sent? Uh, I believe so. We did get one from um, a listener regarding um, the automating process of adding a, or entering a password for an encrypted server. Oh, yes. Because uh, basically the, the challenge is if you have a server and you do a full disk encryption, you have to be at the server, type in the password just to boot it. So how do you um, automate the process of... Um, doing that so when you update the server you don't have to enter the password but also you want to make it not so easy that if someone steals your server that they don't have to enter the password so it's kind of like a really hard um, thing to automate that normally with security you're dealing with um, you know the the convenience factor which is often uh, a side effect of you know you lose some some of that compared to the um, ease of security so right um, a listener, I, I can't remember the individual's name. I don't have it in front of me, but wrote in with a neat little trick. And what it allowed me to do, and I, I did a test, 
is use uh, Drop Bear to basically um, allow me to um, write a script that would then get into the server, enter the key, and then it'll actually boot the server, and it worked. It was like, wow. And it sacrificed no convenience because, mm. or no security for the convenience because um, the script is on my laptop, so if, if someone stole the server, they wouldn't be able to unlock it, but my script would be able to do that. And I think it goes without saying, protect the script. But you could also make the script ask you to type the password because the script automated that and had the password in clear text. But you could easily, it's bash, create a variable and have it read from standard input and then pretty much do the same thing and then not have that. It's certainly a clever solution. It was a great solution, yeah. And what uh, the other one, kind of feedback, but also uh, feather in our hat, we made the list. I thought we should be higher up on the list, but list of uh, the Linux podcast you have to listen to. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, it they showed a few of them on there, and there were a few that were like they were older. Uh, I remember seeing this list before. So it, what it sounds like he does is uh, this person that writes it. Um, they uh, they have a list that they created like five years ago, and they just update it with who's still current. Um, and so I don't know who's still got a pulse. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So we're still around. Yay. 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 Awesome. No, but it's cool. Yeah. We want to say thank you. Uh, do you guys have that link? Um, yes. Is it uh, Linux? I'll drop or? it in the. Yeah. Well, anyway, what I was uh, what I was looking for was the email or the name for our uh, donator. And um, it's Anonymous Penguin 8. Awesome. So we want to say thank you. Thank you, Anonymous thank Penguin. You. What's neat is his uh, name is APT. UX8. So, it, you know, APT. But no, it's supposed to be Anonymous Penguin 8 or something. I don't know. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, or Anonymous P-Tux 8. APT. I, I don't know. Something. Yeah. Anyway, so we want to say thank you. Um, yeah. So what else did we have? I think that's about it. Yeah, that's all I've seen. I actually had a bunch of junk mail all of a sudden started coming to me yeah, we the did. last few days. Yeah. It's in my spam folder, so I wasn't sure what I was missing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, so the uh, it's itfoss.com slash Linux podcast. That's what that link is. Yeah. All right. Um, I think on. that's all I saw. Yeah, yeah so... Moving on to Distro Fever. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. All right. So what uh, what do you guys see as the cool releases that you're interested in? You know, I'm scared every time I've seen. So Void is an independently developed rolling release distribution with its own package manager. Uh, does the yeah. world need another package manager? I mean, I, I hats yeah. off to people who, ta- who tackle that, but that's... It's hard to get an option for that because, like, look, you're either yum in it or you're, you know, well, I guess there's arch people too, but they're, yeah. your yummer apt is the pretty much accepted mm-hmm. where you're going to find it. I, yeah. I feel like we're at the point, I know a lot of people will disagree with me, but I think we're at the point where, I mean, there's really no reason to reinvent the wheel because we already have a lot of these already written and they work. But then we also have universal package formats that may not solve every single problem, but, um, it's at the point now where I just wonder if we're going to have a future at some point where the package manager is only used for 
OS level packages like the kernel, the drivers and things like that, then user space applications will all be just a universal format anyway. So I guess I find it curious that a new package manager would even come out in this day and age. But then again, um, some people really don't like that idea and they really don't want universal packages. So there there could be that too. Yeah. I mean, in this case, we're either talking about a package manager of its own. It's because this is not based on something else from what it looks like. It, right. It's right. an independently developed, so you can't just grab right. Yum because it has all the dependencies of Red Hat, or you can't just grab Apt and use that because it has all the dependencies of Debian. Um, so then they have to have something you know that will work with their system, their, their list of what they have installed. Yeah. They've got to rebuild all the packages that they want to offer their users with their package right. format in mind rather than use Debian, Arch, or whatever else, or Yum, that already has done all that work for you. So you're, in that case, what I found, like uh, with Solus, for example, when Solus first came out, it had very few packages in the repository. Like most of the applications that I wanted to, to run weren't available. Now that's not a problem today, but that's the problem that these distributions run into is now their users want certain applications. Well, they didn't get around to building them yet, and that's a lot of overhead for developers to have to grab source of every single application that people want to install and then compile it and put it in a, their format. So that's mm-hmm. a lot of work. If they can handle that workload, then that's awesome for them. I, I mean, that's great, but um, right. they, must, they must know what they're doing to have made that decision. Yeah, well, and one more thing, reason I think why they did it is that they don't use um, SysV in it or uh, um, what is it called? SystemD. System D. System D. Yeah, they use a native init system called Runit. Pretty sure, well, DevOne doesn't use um, systemd, and I'm pretty sure that's a compile flag with a lot of them anyway, where you can change that when you're compiling that. But I'm not a developer, so I don't want to say that's exactly correct, but I thought I heard something about the fact that you could actually build that in. Um, There's some, some of the package formats actually have... Um, manual things that you can add to them. They actually give you a place to put your own customizations, although technically Debian has taken that away. Um, more on that later. But mm. <laughs> for the most part, uh, it seems like developers have found a way to to hook into their init system. So. Okay. Um, IBM has uh, Enterprise Linux 8.0 beta out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Red Hat, as we still call them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, so this is after uh, the international buyout machine took them over. International buyout machine, I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So we'll we'll see. We haven't. There's still no more news since we've did our dive into that. I haven't seen anything that I know no. of. I haven't seen a mass exit from Red Hat or anything. Everyone's just and actually uh, nervously glued to their seats. I actually <laughs> had a chance to speak to one of the Red Hat employees, a friend of mine, and he he's optimistic about it. He thinks it's actually going to be a, a really good thing. I didn't get to talk to him for that long to find out why he he feels that way but he seems like he's in a very positive mood mood about it one thing i will say is he's a very um judgmental person in a good way i mean he's he's very if he has an opinion he's the type of person like he's going to tell you right what he thinks and he's not going to sugarcoat anything so for him to have a a good opinion about it um i wonder if that might be a sign that it might be Be for the best yeah Mm. interesting did you look at the features for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8 already? Uh, no, I just wanted to make fun of him for being IBM. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed a few um, application streams is, is one that I think is very notable and actually ties into talking about package management. The latest Fedora, I forgot what they're calling it. I think they're just calling it modules. They allow you to 
have different versions of your packages installed in the same system. So, for example, if you're developing an app that needs a certain version of Node.js, you can download that version of Node.js, but it doesn't conflict with the rest of the system or oh, what the okay. system relies on. So if the system has a library of version X, but you need version Y for your, your project, then you can do that. And I think that's something that a lot of developers need because I've worked in shops where you have developers that will literally keep their workstation on a specific distro version just because the libraries are known to work for the application mm-hmm. that they're developing. And what Fedora is doing is they're making it cap- possible for you to actually say, well, that's fine. I actually want this other version of this library for this project. And then you can make that decision as a developer. And surprising to me is Enterprise Linux 8 in the beta, they already have this. They're calling it application streams. And usually it takes a long time for um, you know features in Fedora to make it to Enterprise Linux 8. It usually takes several releases. Um, for example, DNF, uh, Fedora's had that for a long time. That's still not in Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8, like not even DNF. And that's been in Fedora for, what, two years now or something like that? But application streams came out in Fedora in the most recent release, and it's already in Enterprise Linux 8. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much the same thing. It allows you to have um, different packages at a different level than what comes with it. And I'm not really sure how deep that goes because I haven't dived in, but that's basically the executive summary that's, of what that that's is. That's a good concept, though, because that's one of the problems I literally <laughs> have right now. Uh, I have a node in Yarn problem was an orchestra with one of my older machines that doesn't want to update because there's some dependency not met with node right. and Yarn, and I can't compile, and it's mm. aggravating. And, I, and I've seen people download libraries and, and put them on the system and to compile something and then something else like in the package manager for the distro won't install because it's getting a conflicting library. Honestly, I'm at the point where I'm, I feel like this is great. Like we didn't think to solve this before. Like it just didn't come up. I mean, I'm glad that they did. And I'm, I'm glad that Fedora and Red Hat are doing this. This kind of seems like one of those things that we would have already had a solution for quite a long time ago, but I'm glad it exists today. It clearly shows there's some intricacies that we don't understand. Because right. trust me, everyone's had the problem. It's just mm-hmm. solving it's not easy. Deep in Linux has a new, and a lot of people have asked me about this because they like the look, uh, but unfortunately this is the one, and I've done a review of this before, and I did not review this particular distro, but it has uh, spying apps built into it. That's a Chinese distribution, right? I got the right one. They're spying on you or allowing you to spy on others? Uh, you, They're spying on you. you send yeah, I'm pretty this, sure this is the Chinese native. Yeah, the Chinese native. Um, so it's really interesting, and it's also a concept in culture, and Tony can probably attest to this. Mm-hmm. Culture is different over there. And yeah. um, they're like, well, of course our Linux distro contacts the Chinese government and sends all the usage stats. Why wouldn't we want to give them and let them know the feedback? Like the attitude was interesting when I uh, dug into it, the thing. Yeah. Like they're like, well, of course it does it. They're not even trying to hide it. Um, it's whether or not you're comfortable with it. But then again, we send a lot of things to Google and other places around here and Facebook. So I guess it's just a matter of your opinion. It just has some type of um, like package usage, and it's a little bit unclear what all it reports because it's a – I think it's a module that is closed source so it's not telling you everything that it does mm-hmm. that is just kind of baked in it can be removed um from it i believe without too much trouble yeah. but it's kind of a weird thing that it's baked in and it sends it to the other uh, i don't know if it's in the newest version of it but i would suspect it is it's been in previous versions um the a guy who runs a channel uh youtube channel called quids up uh, he did a deep review of the deep in what he likes what he doesn't like and talked about that aspect of it in more detail Mm. Hmm. You know, uh, really what what I uh, – talking to the – really they were kind of like teenagers, uh, the students there, is um, that they were like, well, Google does the same thing. 
So what are you worried about? You know, we don't care. Right. You know, I mean, everybody mm. gives everything to Google and Facebook in, well, not in the U.S., but right. But, uh, you know, so they're like, eh, what's the difference? Yeah, that, that is kind of that attitude they have. They're very different I think, there, Yeah, so. and, you know, so our point of view is that. But I get Google Maps. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's <laughs> there. It's openly the government is yeah. getting the information and, and analyzing we like to it. We're here. here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretending that the government doesn't. We're pretending right. they didn't tap all the ISPs. <laughs> right. I, I live in my little private world of things work the way I think they work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until you find out otherwise. Until I find out otherwise. All, all right. right. I think that's it for the distros. We should bottom. Unless you guys see anything else. That's all I saw. All right. So moving on to the news. Tech news and views. All right. So what news do we see? Who wants to start? So apparently there's a new Raspberry Pi model. The Raspberry Pi 3 Model A+, which is not a high-end Pi, so it has less RAM, for example. Mm. I think it's to cater to the people that want a cheaper Pi, not necessarily the, um, I forgot what it was called, the Pi Zero, that's really tiny and, and underpowered. But I think there were some people that were buying the Pi 2 or the, <coughs> Pi, or, the, or the Pi 1. They want more power than the Zero, but not necessarily as much as a Pi 3. And uh, the A-plus is basically a less powerful version. I haven't actually had a chance to use it yet because, of course, it just came out, and I probably won't because it's lower-powered. But the rumor is that they're working on a follow-up to the Raspberry Pi 3 and that this is going to be the last um, lower-powered version until um, they do a major redesign. Again, that's just a rumor. We don't really have any actual details quite yet, but it looks like there's some interesting developments coming Mm. out of uh, Raspberry Pi. Neat. Yeah. Another one I had was um, I just actually literally this morning while I was waiting for the guys to get here to the studio, um, it was in the news that um, LibreOffice 6.2 has been branched, so development starts on that, but they're considering 32-bit builds deprecated as of this release. That doesn't mean necessarily that they won't release a 32-bit version of it. They still might. But what it means is they're going to consider it deprecated and in a future release. They're just not going to support that at all. You could most likely compile it yourself if you want to. But it's a sign of the times, though, that in a future release, it's just not going to be something that they're going to uh, facilitate on their side. Yeah, and it can be a lot of overhead for them to be able to to have to compile and manage, you know, uh, packages for, you know, two separate or multiple... um, uh, architectures, right? I agree. Uh, and then, but if you're still running a 32-bit system, do you really want to spend the time to compile LibreOffice? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where um, there there is still some use case for 32-bit. Um, one example uh, might be a netbook. Though those older netbooks mm-hmm. can't do 64-bit. Same with net tops. You might have a net top. Um, not very many people bought into those, but if you and if you actually have one, then you're 32-bit. But other than that, um, I want to say pretty much any computer worth using today is 64-bit. Now, in other markets where, or other countries where there's, where, you know, computers are hard to come by, um, they, there might be still a use case for 32-bit there because they're trying to make this older hardware last longer because yeah. they just don't have access to something newer. However, um, it seems to me like most of the time when people say they need 32-bit, they usually don't because the hardware they're running actually supports 64-bit, mm-hmm. and they just assume that it doesn't. Because even the Pentium 4 HT, as of Prescott, 
supports 64-bit. So I think they're making mm-hmm. the right decision. And if you actually do need 32-bit, um, if you think about it, there's still LTS Debian and there's LTS um, you know, Ubuntu that's going to be supported for a very long time, and they're not going to take LibreOffice away from you. Obviously, it's there. It's going to be there for a while, current version. So I don't think anyone will really miss out on Ubuntu. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> if uh, Ubuntu or Debian will pick up and recompile it for 32-bit for those systems. Well, I don't think Ubuntu is doing anything 32-bit anymore, unless I'm mistaken. No, they're not. Um, we, we announced that a while ago. They, uh, <clears throat> they, they, I think it was in the 18 or even before then. They're yeah. just not going to compile anymore. Right. Okay. So, so that's. I mean, Debian still still exists. So, um, yeah. So, if you're using eighteen oh four LTS, you might have I, a problem. Systems have become so inexpensive. You can buy used computers. <laughs> I mean, they're throwing away sixty four bit computers now, just life cycles. So, I think yeah. for oh, in the big scheme of things, that just, is true. But one thing that's happened to me is I had, um, you know, my my opinion, like I mentioned, is any computer worth using today is sixty four bit. However, when I made that opinion on my YouTube channel, someone was quick to correct me because I have some viewers from other countries. And and someone told me, like, hey, just so you know, we really can't get um, 64-bit machines here that easily. It's actually really hard. Our computers are really old, and we're we're trying to make them um, last for a really Mm. long time. So um, they just wanted me to keep that in mind. However, um, one thing I'm curious about with Prescott being, what, um, 16? Was it 2002 or 2004? I can't remember, but it's at least 14 years old that we've had 64-bit support. Exactly. I have to imagine even those countries are starting to get to the point where 64-bit machines are starting to, to proliferate and trickle in. So it yeah. feels like they would be. So, um, Another one that I found was 1804, Ubuntu 1804, speaking of that, has been granted 10 years of support. Mark yes. Shuttleworth, in, in a article on serverwatch.com, wow. At his OpenStack keynote, mentioned 1804 would be extended for ten or, or a total of ten years for support. Another article I can't find the source. I thought he mentioned 1604 as well. Actually, I don't know if you guys saw that. I only but, seen the 1804 yeah, on the okay. list. I didn't see the 16. We know 1804 for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and and that that's great for for people that um, don't want to ever upgrade their operating systems and stay on the same version forever. So I guess yeah. they're being catered to. So. Hmm. Yeah, once you load your server, ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Just patch it. <laughs> exactly. So that's basically all that I found on my side. All right. Do you have anything, Tony? You want me to run down my list? Uh, you know, the one thing I had is, uh, so I have a Pixel phone, mm. and they have a new thing for your camera. I saw, night Tom, sight. you posted on it. Yep. Yeah, Night Sight. Oh, uh, yeah. I tested it out. It works really nice. Oh, yeah. I like it's it. It's impressive. Like, you, you posted a pretty good picture, but it still had a, a decent amount of light coming off of the monitor, your son yeah. playing. I also posted a follow-up on of almost no darkness. It's down oh, in the you? thread later. It shows no the, light, you mean? Yeah, like a much yeah. lower light. It's impressive how good it will do in that. I did one in my backyard, uh, and I, there was a light in the background. So I couldn't, like, physically, I couldn't, or, like, through my own eyes, I couldn't see, like, the foreground, like, my actual yard. When I took a picture with the camera... With my uh, phone, it took the picture, and what it really what it does is it brackets a bunch of, of frames all at once, and then it does a lot of software composition yep. and and to bring out this one picture. Uh, but it brought out I could see my full yard. So wow. Um, 
is something that has been around in the SLR market. So I used to do professional photography, and um, you can HDR images by taking a series image at different stops. It's uh, referred to as bracketing in professional photography. Um, so it's something. It's a feature that we knew about, but it was always then post done inside of like Photoshop has the ability to reassemble them to make a fully composited images with all the different exposure ranges uh, to be able to do it. So Google uh, being able to com- Buying that down into a phone is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And if you search for uh, the Google Pixel 2 in computational photography, because um, that's the title of the video, there is a deep dive with some Google engineers on YouTube uh, where they talk about how they came up with the computational photography, mm. the engineering that went into it, and things like that, and why Google's um, focus is less on hardware and more on these AI systems that can do things like that. Because the HDR images always had a look to them that wasn't like the Google does. So the Google has now created this image that's still artificial in nature the way it produced it, but very, you look at it and you're like, wow. Yeah, it's lifelike. It's very lifelike. Yeah, and what HDR stands for, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past. High dynamic range. Yeah, high dynamic range. And your eyes will see that dynamic range. Uh, So uh, when people first start using professional cameras, well, that's not what I saw. Why? Why isn't the ca- the picture coming right. out? Well, it's because the camera takes picture at one dynamic, right. not all the range. Yeah, the, the I think your eyes see thirty stops of light as they measure stops, and I know cameras the best ones right now. We're only doing like twelve and thirteen stops. I ran mm-hmm. into this when I was trying to take a picture of the moon when we had the blood moon one of these yeah. years, yeah. and it was a really <laughs> challenge. I could see it just fine. Why won't you Come photograph? Come on, sensor, do it the way I want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually there's been HDR apps you can get for your phones. Yes, um, and uh, for a long time, like uh, I would say five years ago, I had an HDR app on my Android phone. Um, but and then the recent, in the last three four years, they've all built it into the main camera. Yes, and they've done a great uh, job. Google's yeah. ahead of the market on that. Google's really their night site is pretty. pretty yeah, so night site is really an advancement on that. And they, actually, everything that the Pixel camera does now is uh, is HDR based, right? It, it's always taking multiple frames yeah. and, and computating. Yeah, um, there's a. I, mean, I think we talked about it um, on the last show. Uh, Google engineer who left Google did a breakdown of why Google's AI system is so far advanced than any other company he's ever been. He compared them to all the big guys. He said the reason why, though, he goes, is he goes, you realize how subtle it is. He goes, you just take for granted all the things that Google does. He goes, we're using an AI system to predictively do things, and that same AI knowledge is applying to cameras. It's applying to search, how we suggest what restaurant you should go to, and it's it's just really that's what's got them their software really kind of has them ahead on the market for some of those things yeah it's pretty cool Mm -hmm. Um, i want to make a clarification actually because i had uh, two articles open on my computer talking about um, 1804 getting 10 years Uh, 1604 actually is being extended as well not necessarily Mm -hmm. 10 years though it didn't say it doesn't say 10 years longer it's just some some longer amount of time. Okay. So 1604 will still be around for a while. For originally, it was like three and a half years, right? It's well. Normally, Ubuntu is five years on Ubuntu's desktop distro and their server, but the um, spins like Xubuntu, Ubuntu Mate, Kubuntu are limited to three. So oh, okay. that's a distinction that a lot of people and that's realize. That's on the LTS. Yeah, on LTS. Yeah. So so desktops get three. Ubuntu desktop gets five. Ubuntu server gets five. Okay. So, and in this case, sixteen oh four will be extended. Um, but I, again, I don't know for how long. Not probably not the ten years of eighteen oh four. But I guess mm-hmm. we'll have to see what they want to uh, do for that. All right. So if you're running thirty two bit, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, that's all I had. Okay. So I, I put it at the top because this made me laugh this morning. Uh, sudo apt install vrms. And are, you, are you guys familiar with that? Mm-mm. It's virtual Richard Stallman. What? Oh no! It's a it's a fun little utility. Um, you can yum install it if you're using a CentOS or a Red Hat based. But uh, it's virtual RMS, and what it does is it will complain about any software that has a proprietary license. It's basically kind of a license auditor, and uh, so it's just like having Richard Stallman on your computer, <laughs> telling you, <laughs> shaming you for having. Does, proprietary does he show licenses. up on your screen and shake his finger, similar oh, to how Dennis did. Nedry did in Jurassic Park? I, I wish he did. <laughs> that, would, that would make me really happy. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to real news. Um, 4.19 was insecure but faster. 4.20 is more secure but slower. Uh, Pharonix did a deep dive with the new Linux kernel, and, I mean, some extensive. I think there's 19 pages of testing, if you mm. follow the link. Wow. Uh, summary is some things. I think we've seen a 30% hit on some PHP applications, which, of course, for data center web places <laughs> that love the PHP, this is bad. Um, basically, wow. all the mitigations provided thereon that kind of cripple hyperthreading, that cripple lots of other functions to uh, mitigate Spectre meltdown and all the uh, potential issues that are within these processors, um, it just comes with a big performance hit. So if you have a hmm. compute sensitive um, but not a security worry. You can, of course, turn all these features off or stick with the older kernel. Uh, but if you are running it in a data center, that's not an option for you. So this is going to be more and more a problem I think we're seeing. So what's the difference then between this new kernel and the patches that um, the distros have been providing to mitigate these? Um, Apparently it's the same, but this goes further because it's all baked in. But here's the here's the problem, and this is where they break down in some of the testing. We have the 419 kernel without the patches, and the 420 had them. I think they're forced on unless you do a recompile switch. Hmm. So it's... It's kind of basically, I mean, most people not. Most people are just going to install the kernel, not necessarily compile it. Um, but it's concerning because um, yeah. there's some, you know, it's fully mitigated, yay, but it's also because uh, some solutions are just turn off hyperthreading in at the hardware level. Wow, sounds uh, great. I, I definitely want to disable hyperthreading. Yeah, I mean, let me who just needs cut extra, half my course. Yeah, who, who needs more threads running in their CPU? I mean, come on. <laughs> but uh, this is where AMD is coming to the rescue. So I didn't realize this. Uh, take a stab at how much AMD is in the data center market right now, percentage-wise. Hmm. I wouldn't <laughs> think they... Let me 12%? Know. Um I like when they did the interview. I listened to it on one of the podcasts. They're interviewing AMD guy, and I think they said the point five percent. His reply was, "You guys are generous." Really? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Intel doesn't just own the data center market. It it just lives and breathes Intel, of course. And the problem with any monoculture um, of anything, technology or not, when everyone's doing exactly the same thing, you find a flaw in that same thing, then we have a major problem. Hence, mm-hmm. Spectre meltdown, and why right. we're talking about it. Uh, AMD is seizing the moment and. When in Rome, make epic processors. And that's actually their new line. It's called the Rome Epic Series. Hmm. They are only, you know, 128 core processors designed for the data center. They're kind of like Threadripper, so they're popular uh, enthusiast processors. It's really slick. Um, and they've done some, just what they've released so far, Intel is probably a few years out to catch up with this processor design. It's everything from PCIe, I think it's Gen 4. It's all the latest and greatest, more pipelines, more threads. By the way, that single socket 
core, uh, 64 cores, hyperthread 128 width. By the way, AMD's not been mentioned because they're not affected by these Spectre and Meltdown problems. Versus mm. Intel, the new mm. Intel chips that are coming out still have some of those issues involved in them because generally speaking, there's a long life cycle when you're designing a processor. We started designing it two years ago. We went through testing, it's released today. AMD's got the same thing. They've been designing it for years, but they didn't have the flaw. So AMD sees the, this could be the moment they do the data centers. And one of the interesting mm. things, the reason they built these into single sockets is because, hey, uh, VMware, you license by the socket. So you can replace and upgrade, but not upgrade your licenses and actually double your VMware deployments without a license change. That's brilliant. So mm. they said that they said one of the uh, things that they've really got a, a lot of excitement about is going, wow, we can just migrate everything over here and VMware, now my licensing doesn't go up, but we get all the more compute power. Matter of fact, our licensing could go down. Don't worry, I'm sure VMware licensing will catch up. <laughs> They'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unl yeah, single socket, unless. Unless, it's one of these crazy epic processors, but it's pretty cool. Um, it is a, I, I got a link to the article with does a deep dive to all the features of it. It's an exciting processor. Basically, it's just the enterprise version of the Threadripper. Um, so it has a few more enhancements, but it's also designed to fit into like a one U server case, uh, which also means it's clocked very slightly slower than Threadripper. So you're still, personally, if you're building an enthusiast machine, you probably want to go Threadripper still. Hmm. But still, it, it's still it's still game changer. I'd like to see some competition in the data center market. VirtualBox 6.0 Beta 2 has been out. And VirtualBox is one of my favorite virtualization utilities because it's how I run Windows. It runs Windows brilliantly. Um, so I have my Linux machine, but occasionally there are things and I have to get them done because of client work we do or just testing. Uh, VirtualBox is one of my favorite go-tos because very quickly I can create a snapshot of my Windows VM and spin it up and do whatever testing I need to do and then destroy that VM uh, on the fly. Great interface, easy to use, cross-platform, creates OVA files so it supports industry standards, open source. The Some of the extensions are proprietary that you can do, like the enhancements you get for for some of the USB drivers, but it's still a great open source project. I am shocked when Oracle has not destroyed this product. I am like, too. I, I've been thinking that for a while. I'm like, like, you know, I've been predicting for a long time that um, they would screw it up and VirtualBox would get forked and become a new thing, which mm -hmm. completely never happened so far. So I'm yeah. actually glad that never happened. It, yeah, so yeah. it's impressive. Um, and 6.0, apparently um, a Russian hacker, and I don't have the link to this article, but he released an escape flaw if you're using NAT and the Intel uh, MT uh, I have heard network that. card. Yeah, there's a, there is a VM escape potential with version 5.2 that they didn't patch, uh, but he also didn't properly disclose it. His answer was because he hates Oracle because they're difficult to deal with when he's trying to do <laughs> disclosures. So, wow. Um, yeah, but it's it's an edge case. So it's only if you're using NAT, if you're using Intel 100, and if you get something on your machine that is actively trying to exploit it. So, Right, it, and then once you get escape out of the, the VM, you're onto the host system. You still a, a limited permission. Then you have to have another. You have to have another permission from again. there. So it's yeah. not like end of the world. Um, and most people are like me. I just run my Windows VMs for testing inside of it. I don't. It's not really an enterprise class uh, virtualization because it's a Type Two hypervisor. So it's generally just something you spin up to test something real mm -hmm. quick. Mostly um, for developers and yeah. and Vagrant supports it as well, which is a great utility if you want to script. Um, the creation of virtual machines, mm. and um, you can even tie that into Ansible, so you can literally have um, a VirtualBox automated install of whatever OS with Ansible behind it to customize everything, and uh, stuff like that is great. Yeah, you know, that's for cool. VirtualBox. Yeah, we um, we use it as a solution for 
they were running a Windows server, but they needed a Windows 7 communications device, but the server was plenty of handle. It just wouldn't run inside a server. So we spun up a VirtualBox instance hmm. inside of there, a small VM, and then you can just put it in there because uh, they didn't have the Hyper-V licenses, and that's, that's a whole different animal. Yeah. We don't talk about those. They're expensive. Build your own botnet with GitHub. You know, we can script this today. No, this isn't for actually destroying the internet. This is for security researchers, but they just updated to a new version. It's actually kind of neat. I've had a, I have a few security researchers friends who build these botnets um, for testing, and it's one of those things you kind of understand the tools that are being used. You understand how the botnets work and how you can send them to attack. Uh, so I know people have created these in their lab environment or spun up like a handful of them on the internet and they're using them for proper usage of security research and uh, testing their own systems with them. So it's kind of neat. So uh, be able to do. What's the what's the difference between a so botnet of that attacks is just like what it's attacking, and then a botnet that's good is still uses somebody's system inappropriately. I don't understand. So what it does, or do is, they have their own systems that they just run it all off of? Yeah, and, and an example would be um, here's some of the post exploitation modules built in their keyloggers, webcam, ransom, Outlook. So it's you could go take control of the computers. Then what could I do once I have control of these? And it's kind of a neat dive uh, my friend has done this like it's the, he was contracted to attack his own company mm. and he has of course great knowledge of it so they want to know what an internal threat actor looks like so okay i'm going to go and get these things on there and i'm going to orchestrate it and do things like this and would any of their countermeasure detect if you had a botnet inside your own network of machines orchestrated against yourself so mm. there's a, there's some real use cases for it um, that are really interesting and it's it's kind of fun to play with some of these things too, and of course, uh, we already know the. Uh, it's built by like setting up the rat, the command and control server, and everything is all scripted in here, and we already know they're doing. The bad guys are doing it in the real world all the time. Um, there's a guy that posted. Um, he was going to take care of take care take over all those um, Mikrotik uh, routers, and then he did it. And he's got a Twitter account for a little while that people are following. He's anonymously posting. This is what I'm going to do next because no one will patch it. And then mm. he goes and does it. See, I told you no one would patch it. <laughs> Just, he's kind of making a joke out of it. But, so building your defenses against those are important uh, in a, any of the training stuff. And a little bit before we started the show, you we were talking about like hackthebox.eu, which is a great um, hacking site. you got to hack your own invite. But it kinda, a lot of people really, if you work in IT, you work in security automatically. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I feel right now. Like if you're putting your hands on the keyboard in some admin fashion at all, you should have really good security concepts because um, it's about building defenses against this. It's going to come up. There's no doubt. And Tony right. knows because he does work yep. in security. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can't have enough training or everything else. I love the register, how they do their titles. But we're talking about first the title is, okay, Google, why was your web track <laughs> web traffic hijacked and routed through China and Russia? Mm. And then they call it BGP hijacking, committed grand theft internet. <laughs> and it's not the first incident we've had with uh, BGP. Border Gateway Protocol is dramatically insecure. It's because the internet was built by a bunch of people who thought we'd all trust the internet. Right. And we would all just advertise BGP routes and we would accept that those BGP routes are where they're supposed to be. And uh, there was an oops that sounded like this. It didn't seem so, to be nefarious. So the BGP protocol itself is insecure. It'll yeah. allow you know, adding routes in and propagating the, across the internet. But uh, so the way that it doesn't just happen all the time is that your the ISP that is doing the the um, interfacing with the new AS? So say like where I work, we have our own AS, and we do BGP routing and um, uh, peering. So 
the RISP says, you know, we will allow you to give us BGP routes as long as it's only for these networks. Right. And then so RISP it has the responsibility to only propagate out what is our networks through their, their network and out to the rest of the Internet. So it's really on the ISP or these AS peers is where these problems are happening. They're improperly allowing, uh, you know, addition of networks. And when you're thinking about maybe the Chinese government wants to cause disruptions, I don't know. Or this Chinese ISP or, or whoever was the peer. Uh, I think the peer that it all started with was a uh, one in India. I think they're the ones that did the hijack. Let me look here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I know where the, the issue came from is that the it hit the Chinese Great Firewall uh -huh. and just started dropping the network or dropping the traffic there because they said, hey, it's not supposed to come here. We're, we're dropping it. Yeah. So look, it, it just, it's a mess. It's just, you know, we go back a few years ago when BGP um, broke for uh, Pakistan. They were trying to stop YouTube and they broke YouTube for everybody. Right. Um, by putting a BGP route wrong, and then someone accepted the route change, and then it just broke. Um, fun trivia, though, after I read this article, if you look up um, AS7007, it was the 7007 incident. It was the first Internet outage in 1997, and it was a big BGP outage. That we mm. still, to this day, don't know how it all happened, but it all went yeah. wrong on that day. Um, BGP wow. broke, and the Internet was much smaller, and it probably didn't even make the news. 97, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> just aggravated a few techie people like ourselves. But right. It's still something that's, uh, you know, a problem. Mark is not selling Ubuntu, he's told TechCrunch. Uh, he did a whole uh, breakdown of it and say, no, I'm not selling it. We're not planning on selling. I, But he didn't say that he's against selling. I think he's mm -hmm. trying to say, who wants to buy me? <laughs> well, he's basically <laughs> saying he wants to see his vision, um, you know, saw, saw through to the end. Yeah. And I, I think what... I get is if he is bought out, he wants to still be in charge of it. But he doesn't. He says he's not selling it. He's not interested in it. But they're trying to do a IPO at some point next year. And what would happen if someone came in and bought like a huge number of shares? Then what would happen th at that point? You know, it, it's how would that play out? Even you got to fight Mark. Said. I think that's how that plays I, out. I don't know. I just kind of still feel like something could still happen. I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Because Microsoft, you know, you don't own a Linux to show yet. They're going mm -hmm. to. It's, it's going to, they're, they're definitely going to. Because they, they're, they're trying to run their own right now. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, feel I haven't heard anything other than when it first came out. I haven't heard anything since. Ubuntu is the most popular platform on Azure. So mm -hmm. that that's why I think of it too. And, and if you think about the fact that IBM now owns Red Hat, yep. I think, I think Microsoft is really smart, and I think they know that Windows as an operating system is not infinitely scalable. It doesn't work very well in cloud. Now, it's made to work well because they do significant changes and tweaks to it to make it work that way. But inherently, Windows is just not meant to work in the environments that it's in today, whereas Linux scales very, very well. Yep. So my opinion is that they're working on something to replace Windows. I, I, I don't think they're going to be um, forthcoming about this information. I, you know, because I just don't, they're smart and they know that this doesn't scale. They know this isn't going to be something they can bet their business on for the long term. Well, I think that's why they're really so focused on Azure because reality is we're realizing running, the software has to run somewhere, whatever that software might be. Right. And 
we're seeing this all the time. So even in my markets, even in the mid markets, a lot of my clients do not have any Windows servers. They're big right. companies doing $40, $50 million a year with zero servers on-prem. And the reason why, they just got web-enabled apps that run everything for them that mm-hmm. different people wrote to cover uh, any gap in our industry. Um, so because more and more systems are like that, you look at QuickBooks, no longer are we putting in more servers. QuickBooks is really pushing all their clients to a web base. So the small business market, everything is going to something hosted. And I doubt QuickBooks on the web is running on some Windows server 2016 yeah. on the back end. It's undoubtedly run on some type of series of Linux servers. But I, I do know for a fact a lot of the the uh, transportation clients we have, the dispatching tools, are all running really cool PHP one. Uh, one of our law firms, they just retired their server. Almost, we're almost off of it. It's a really old server that I can't believe works. But um, <laughs> the whole new time management system for a very large, this is a corporate attorney, it's all built on Laravel and PHP. We looked hmm. at it and we shocked because our, hmm. our invoicing system is built on Laravel and PHP. And we've seen it, we're like, that looks like they're, when we see them log in, we're like, it looks like they're logged into our invoice system. What? Oh, just built on the same framework, and they chose the same default Laravel color scheme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're seeing more and more of that. Um, that's just, you know, and it was a server application with client tools that ran on all the workstations. The next iteration was like, it's all in the cloud. It's completely rewritten, and we charge you a monthly fee for it, but they're fine with it because there's no more you know, constant updates and pain in the butt of reloading software on every stupid workstation. Everyone just logs into a website, logs right. their time, and it works well. That is very true. It's a time period where everything is uh, transitioning and changing, and Microsoft has to change to um, keep up with everything. And it'll be yep. interesting to see what they decide to do. Well, legacy lasts a long time, forever. Yeah. I mean, the server we replaced for this log client is 12 or 13 years old, so... Yeah, they could remain comfortable with their... Uh, you know, current grip on the market, but I, I think Microsoft probably wants the next big thing. And yeah, to take and they want to yeah. post it on Azure. Uh, this is this is article is too funny not to share. Japan's Minister of Cybersecurity admits he never uses computer. <laughs> wow, it's good strategy, I guess. Um, he's secure. He's quite secure. I I don't I'm I can't get in his emails because he doesn't have any. I'm sure. <laughs> so, um. Yep. It's kind of funny because I did laugh because I, I found this article on Reddit. And, of course, the first comment is, so how soon before IBM hires them? And, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. A bunch of people that don't know computers in a you know, very corporate environment uh, and then put in charge of technology, people who don't understand <clears throat> it. It's kind of a laugh at them, but it is also typical of all of us who have worked in IT have had a manager like that who just doesn't understand the technologies that we're deploying, and it becomes a very aggravating problem. Yeah, My like, best managers are ones that did know technology. So basically you, you tell your manager, like, I'm having a problem with my SQL, and you're told, well, what do you mean? Use someone else's SQL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so it's kind of funny to read. Um, I'll leave a link to the article that. Open source home assistant. This is actually kind of cool. So one of my problems I have uh, in general with a lot of different home automation things, and people have asked me questions about them because I've, I've talked about how to segregate all the stuff on the firewalls, and they're like, well, how does this all talk back and forth. I'm like, well, the problem is it all talks to the cloud. So you talk, even though you're on the same network, you go out to the cloud, you tell the cloud to do a thing. It's got a persistent connection to the cloud. It does the thing based on it. That's how it works inside and outside your house. It's not like before where we had to do all kinds of mapping of network ports and things like that. Well, the nice thing is when you build some of your own home assistant stuff is this will allow you all that local access so you can actually build the things you want without having some third party involved. And the the one thing that really comes up to me when it comes to cloud things gone wrong, and we I think it was last year. Do you remember the guy with the garage door opener? So mm-hmm. guy bought an automated garage door opener, and uh, then he got mad and posted a really bad review and got really 
he was being obnoxious in the forums. So it turns out there's only two developers, and he they found his ID and just disabled his garage door. Yeah. <laughs> so his app wouldn't talk anymore to it. They just disabled it, and he's like, this is wrong. They're like, return it and quit complaining about it. But you think about it, if they ever shut down, this is the problem with a lot of the low-end cloud devices. If they shut down, and uh, I can't remember which camera company did this recently. I think it used to be owned by Netgear, and they sold it. Um, when they shut down the cloud service, everything went dead because there's no local access to the devices. They only talk to the cloud. So the minute they spun down the cloud, mm-hmm. because the company got acquired, all those devices just went dark. And they don't have any options locally to administer them. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I like some of the open source tools where you can build it yourself, whether it's light switches or anything like that, because it's really a... Um, I want to be in control of it. I don't right. want the cloud there. And not to mention the risk of someone hacks the cloud where it's all done. And they send whatever command they want. They turn all the lights on in my house and turn my toasters on. Of course, I also am a person who doesn't understand why my toaster needs to have Wi-Fi in it. <laughs> I'm with you on well, that. I don't yeah. either. If you, when you're looking for your IT, IoT stuff, if you look for it, if it runs on ZigBee or Z-Wave, right. those are open protocols that uh, that other devices within that your network or whatever we'll can connect to. to yes. what can can. can <laughs> Yeah, talk to it and control it. Uh, so if you have something that you can control from your own house that can control those devices, that's the way to go. Right. Absolutely. It's it's just an interesting, like, I, I try to encourage people to look more into them because I see there's all these really low-cost manufacturers selling all this crazy cloud stuff. And I've looked at some of it because they reach out to me on my YouTube channel want me to sell their crap all mm. the time. And I looked at it. And I'm like, how does it run? I'm like, oh, we have our own cloud server. We have it here. And I'm like... Like, they're like one developer doing this. Like, if he doesn't pay his Amazon bill, it just turns off. Wow. Right. And people don't realize that he's trying to sell. I'm trying to sell more so we can afford the, like, we talked to him. We're like, you don't really have a good business model around this. You're just hoping to sell enough of them, enough hardware to support it because it doesn't have any fees attached to it. So their goal is to just keep mashing out hardware. But it, if he gives up or something happens, none of it's open source. The code's nowhere. The server turns off, and your lights don't turn on or off anymore. Right. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah that's so uh, so you were talking about the, the Home Assistant, right? Yeah. And that it runs on Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. There's another one called the Mozilla Project, uh, Mozilla mm-hmm. Things Gateway that I was looking at. But uh, between the two of them, they, they look very similar. Uh, and I'm going to do some more research to see, uh, you know, what's really the difference between the Home Assistant and the Mozilla Project. Um, but that's definitely something I want to do in the future. One of my... Uh so when I, I love there's a lot of good projects you can find in this. The guy, he built his own home automation, and you're going to love this, using the Zelda, uh, what's that thing they play? The, the Ocarina. Ocarina. So he plays the tunes, and the Raspberry Pi listens, and it's how he controls things in his house. Right. <laughs> that is the best thing ever. Yeah, I love that. So, that's, see, you just can't do that with cloud-enabled devices. I mean, I want an Ocarina-controlled light switch and everything else. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, you have to wear the tunic while you do it. <laughs> uh, the last thing I have in here is Home Lab OS, and oh, we, you know, Home Labbers are where it all starts. Because any anyone I know in the Home Lab is either one of two things: one, we use it for our own testing environments, or two, it's a learning opportunity to learn the enterprise environments. And we don't always get to play with all the toys in enterprise because enterprise has to be very stable. My Home Lab just has to be cool. And um, so this is a list kept of software by uh, Nick uh, Boosie. I leave a link, and it's all on. Uh, GitLab, and it's command pro, easy deployment, easy uh, backup, restore, all kinds of neat stuff of a bunch of home lab stuff, and it's a really slick 
um, collection of tools there to run your own personal data center in your home. All open source, and mm. uh, yeah, it's very well. I have not tested it, but it looks very well scripted, and reviews are really good on this for uh, setting up these deployments. So it's got some cool, of course, Grafana's in there and things like. That. If he's got Grafana set up easy, I'd, I'd be happy. Grafana is um, is beautiful but painful. Every I've, time there's a change or update in it, it's it. I have spent too many hours playing with Grafana, and I've decided I don't need pretty graphs sometimes. It's hard, yeah. <laughs> there's also a Bitwarden for password and. Secrets managing that, which is pretty cool. I really want to like Bitwarden, but I want someone who's smarter than me to audit Bitwarden. It's been done. Has it been audited? Has it been done, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, there, there's some things that they're concerned about as far as um, it allows you to set a weak password. It doesn't like force you to use something oh, strong. Yeah. But that's, that's, be, that's the user. If they make a dumb decision. Okay, then, I did not know it was audited. I'm um, going to do a I dive into that. I forgot who did it, though. But they found a few things, but nothing that wasn't like easy for them to, to fix. It actually came out pretty well. So um, I'm, I like it. Yeah, I like it a lot. I've seen one of the projects in here I've talked about before is uh, Dasher which is an Amazon Dash button support. So Amazon will give you the Dash buttons for really cheap because mm-hmm. they want you to buy crap. And mm-hmm. um, they're hackable. And there's a guy that uh, made his own Dash buttons, and like he, one will order a pizza for him automatically through a script. <laughs> <laughs> so they use them to do all kinds of things other than what they were originally designed to do, and it's there's some customizations. There's some pretty neat utilities in here. I like that they're all collected in one place. Um, Next Cloud. Yeah, Next Yeah, Cloud, that looks really cool. They have an IFTT replacement, uh, so that's kind of if this, then that. That's kind of neat. Mm. There's all kinds of neat stuff in here. So it's something I didn't know about. Um, and there's another Home Assistant one, which is another open-source Home Assistant tool that he's got linked in here. Anyways, that's all I have for the news, but uh, I want to play with this HomeLab project now. Cool. No, actually, that Home Assistant, that's the one that you— Oh, is it the same one? That's the same one Wait, you were talking one. about. You're right, yeah. same one I was talking about. Wow, that's pretty cool. So— so he says just put a Ubuntu server, 1810, together, right? Or is 1804? With 8 gigs of RAM. And then it has a set of scripts that installs all of these and configures them to work together in this da- uh, this dashboard. And it requires yeah. Ansible on your local computer. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Right up your alley there. Yeah. Like, I love I Ansible. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's kind of novel. Um, I, I have not dove into this, but I know there's a lot of clients working in this uh, space from, in my small business space we're in. Uh, but there's one of the open source tools in here is called Paperless. It is a document management system for dealing with all the data you produce when scanning. And that's that's a big challenge a lot of the small businesses have because some of the commercial scanning software is like ten and $15,000 just for the software licenses. Mm. Um, and it, they're like, look, we just have, we don't want physically all this stuff we have enough storage because it doesn't take that much storage to scan documents, but we need, of course, they need to be indexed in some meaningful way so we can then go, hey, where's the receipts from 2004 that we yeah. had? Um, so that's kind of interesting. I think it's, a, I didn't realize it was, an, I've never seen an open source one that looks quite so good and well put together. I've seen a few of them that were really cobbled together, as I would put it. This actually looks like it's very usable. And, of course, being a web interface has an easy search to be able to find the things on there, so you're not... The other ones will try to load some software on your computer. It has Pi-hole built in. Yeah, I'm sorry. It has Pi-hole built in. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Uh, Portainer for Docker management. Radar for movie downloading. Wow. Uh, Sonar for TV downloading. 
I've never heard of the lounge always on IRC bouncers. I always use, hmm. uh, what's the one am I using? ISR? No, there's another one I have. It runs on my Linux box, but I'm not hmm. on IRC anymore. I don't even know if it's on or not anymore. Hmm. Hmm. I don't see uh, VPN in this. <laughs> If you're going to be running movie downloaders, uh, you might want to have something to... Yeah. So I wonder if it's going to ask you traffic. what you want to run when, when you uh, install it, if it, or if it, you just get everything, whether you want everything or not. Yeah. We'll have to try it out. Yeah. Pretty cool, though. And he's yeah. got, it looks like it's got a lot of documentation on it as well, so definitely pretty sweet. Very cool. Well, that's all I got. But I want to play with this. This is... I'm still looking at this paperless one. It's got, like, Python OCR scripts in it and stuff, like... That's that's pretty slick, like yeah, <laughs> for an open source project. Oh well, I won't get too far off topic on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do a deep dive into it if it works as a client solution. Do we have any music, Tony? No. We can skip it. Yeah, we'll skip it this time. All right. Let me know if you miss the music or if you like the music We've or if you want me to. It. Yeah, skip it. I was gonna say I, I think most of the the feedback I've heard. Have been people saying, "Oh, I just don't listen to the last ten minutes of the show." Because, yeah, you know, because it's the music and the blah blah blah. So it saves time a step. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it, it's not a very long step. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard to throw that in at no, the end. It's not. So let us know. Uh, also, I, we had feedback. I, I didn't mention this earlier. I should have earlier. That um, he was wondering if it was the our anonymous penguin friend. He was asking if we were still releasing an MP3 format. And I'm confused on what he meant by oh, that. Oh, yeah, because that's all we release in now is right. MP3. And he, I, so I don't know whether he was missing our MP3 feed or wants something else. Like if you want us to go back to yeah, having the would, OG. I'm pretty sure I replied back to that, and that's what I said. I'm like, I, okay. I am, I'm confused as to what you're asking. Yeah. And no, I didn't get a reply. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. All right. All right. Well, thank you. This was... Yeah, Yeah. so we've come to the end of the show. This was episode 293. A bag of salt water got in the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. And see you next time. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. (laughs)